Welcome, everyone, to the 55th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have what I expect to be a very powerful, powerful pair of discussions. First, I will talk to Rashawn Ray. This is his second visit to COVID Calls, and he's going to talk with me about the George Floyd murder in Minneapolis, and we'll discuss it through the context of COVID-19. Second up, also a returning guest, I'll be talking to Gonzalo Basagalupe, and we'll talk about COVID-19 and the situation in Chile. A reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube Live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls recorded as podcasts on soundcloud.com. And coming next week, you'll also be able to hear those podcasts on Spotify or iTunes or other podcast services that you may use. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help me spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. On Monday, the first day of hurricane season, we'll talk about concurrent and compound disasters, so disasters that happen at the same time, like hurricanes, we hope not, but hurricanes and COVID-19. We're going to talk about that with Aaron Clark Ginsburg from RAND and Miriam Belblidia of Imagine Waterworks in New Orleans. As of today, May 29th, 2020, there are... Uh, 5,871,347 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. 1,731,035 of those are in the United States, up from 1,712,816 yesterday. There are now a total of 102,323 deaths reported in the United States, COVID-19, up from 101,000. 196 deaths reported yesterday. 565 of those deaths are in Hennepin County, Minnesota, which is where Minneapolis is located. I want to introduce my first guest today who agreed to join me on very short notice, but he's really somebody I wanted to talk to. We've already had him on COVID calls talking about masks and talking about race. Rashawn Ray, he's a David M. Rubenstein fellow at the Brookings Institution. He's also an associate professor of sociology and executive director of the Lab for Applied Social Science Research at the University of Maryland College Park. Recently, he published the book, How Families Matter, Simply Complicated Intersections of Race, Gender, and Work with Pamela Braboy Jackson. And he brought out another edition of Race and Ethnic Relations in the 21st Century, History, Theory, Institutions, and Policy. Rashawn, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. Thank you for having me, especially under under the circumstances to talk about a very serious and unfortunate topic. Before we turn to that, I just want to get a quick update how you're doing and how your family is doing. You shared with us last time that your wife is a medical professional. Everything okay there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. You know, I, I think what's happened over the past week and the, the connections I know that we'll be talking about between what happened with Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia to Christian Cooper in Central Park and now George Floyd, um, you know, being the parents of two black boys who will instantaneously go from cute to criminal is something that we consciously talk about. And so I think that's probably foremost on her mind, trying to take care of people who are sick, who are dealing with COVID, but then being in the house with three black boys and men uh, based on what she knows about how society reacts to our bodies. Our last discussion, the Ahmad Arbery murder had just happened, and that wasn't that long ago. Um, and now we have this George Floyd murder. So from your perspective, how are you how are you describing how are you making sense of what you're seeing in Minneapolis right now? I know it's a moving news uh, target, mm -hmm. but give me your take on on what we what we should be seeing right now. Yeah, I think it's a few main things for people to recognize. The first big thing is that in, in the incidents that I just noted, what happened with Christian Cooper in Central Park is part of a continuum of police violence that oftentimes ends up um, as the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And what I mean by that is what happened in Central Park is that Amy Cooper 
played what we call the, the damsel in distress racial trope, which is older than the birth of a nation, the, the, the actual birth of our country, as well as the movie and the book. And what she knew was that her calling the police, acting as if Christian Cooper was a black man, graduate of Harvard, former editor at Marvel Studios, that her saying that he was threatening her, that he was physically hurting her, would prompt a response from the police that would lead to people being more likely to believe her. So she knew that believability and culpability were, were on her side. And people know that those type of incidents oftentimes start in ways that the George Floyd incident ends with. So it's important for people to realize this is a continuum that people see. Like the, the, the officer involved killings that we highlight with George Floyd's oftentimes start with the incidents we've seen in Central Park and there are more of them. Second thing for people to recognize, with that being said, as bad as things feel right now with COVID-19, with these incidents laced and raced with cities like Minneapolis burning, police precincts being burned to the ground. And, and I should note that on the ground, Minneapolis, and I've studied this with my colleague, uh, Dana, my colleagues, Dana Fisher and Don Dow, that in Minneapolis, the crowd, if you look at it, was much more racially diverse than crowds that we've seen previously, whether that be anti-lockdown protests or whether that be um, marches and protests against police brutality. So people who were enacting property damage, because it's also important to know that no one really got hurt during these particular incidents. I mean, there was property damage, large scale property damage, but we didn't see anyone get hurt. So with that being said, the speed by which Minneapolis fired those four police officers and brought charges to the officer who had his knee on George Floyd's neck is unprecedented. Five years ago, when Marilyn Mosby stood in Baltimore and charged the officers who were involved with the killing of Freddie Gray with um, criminal charges, that was unprecedented. We fast forward nearly five years today and we have it happening again as the officer who had his knee on George Floyd's neck was charged with third degree murder. Final thing that's important for people to recognize is that officers being charged with police misconduct is very rare. Officers being convicted is even more rare. So what Minneapolis wanted to do, because they know with Philando Castile that the officer got off. There were, there were no convictions with Philando Castile, even though all of us seen what happened. So from the state level in Minnesota and all the way down to Minneapolis, they wanted to make sure that they had evidence that they could convict on, which is why I think that they came up with the charge of third degree murder rather than first or second degree murder. So you think that indicates that from that perspective, I mean, it, it seems fast, but it could have been faster. So there was some legal process going on of making sure, I mean, their strategy is really to get a conviction. Without a doubt. I mean, I think most district attorneys bring forth charges to, to, to aim, aiming to get a conviction. With that being said, though, um, sometimes there is some political posturing there that, okay, we're going to charge this person with first or second degree murder, knowing that it can't happen. And there are a couple of state um, statutes and laws that people should bear in mind. The first big one, and, and I'm unsure about Minnesota, but just across the board, across states, there are typically two main patterns. Either one with charges, there's a step down process. So you charge a person with first degree murder, you can actually reduce it down a second. There are other states that don't allow for that step down. So in other words, if you charge them for first degree murder or second degree murder, if it wasn't premeditated, then that means you, you don't have a step down. You can't go down to more charges. So they brought forth third degree murder and some an additional main charge. That's important for people to note because Minnesota is thinking about their state laws. The second thing that people have to bear in mind is that police officers are highly protected by the law and they are highly protected by the fraternal order of police. I think unions are great, but the fraternal order of police oftentimes operates in a very different way than other unions. And so they have been able to implement policies and laws that allow for police officers, when they've been accused of police brutality and misconduct, to take time to actually review evidence, to come up with a written and verbal statement if they choose to do so, to hire an attorney, to, to essentially get all of their ducks in a row, to decide if they're going to resign or wait it out. And that's why I think the speed by which they fired them is so key. Like that rarely ever happens. Typically, if an officer is going to get fired, 
The Fraternal Order of Police is given a heads up and they tell that officer to resign. That allows for them to keep their pension intact. That mm. also allows for them to move on to another precinct oftentimes and get rehired. So we have to pay attention to these details that I think matter so much. Thank you for bringing those really crucial contexts to understand sort of what's been happening very fast. And let's let's bring this in the context now of, of this pandemic. So um, here we have a situation um, with maximum national distress, maximum urban distress and concern. I mean, people have been in lockdown. They've lost jobs. They have financial insecurity. All of the, you know, we couldn't imagine a worse time. And on Monday, we're talking about disasters that come together. The idea there was to talk about hurricanes and the pandemic. But, you know, I had this, it's occurred to me that we sh the one thing we could have counted on is that there would be an incident of racial violence amid the pandemic. And so we didn't need to look very far for that kind of compound disaster. What do you, the convergence of these two things, I mean, you're uniquely situated to think about them together. What is this revealing? You know, it's interesting. I think Don Lemon on CNN highlighted it very well. He said that we're dealing with two pandemics. We're dealing with COVID-19 and we're dealing with racism. And the way I've been describing it is that in the United States, we have a series of epidemics within the pandemic. But it could be argued that the most fundamental pandemic that the United States and the world, as we think about not just enslavement in the United States or in the Caribbean, but also colonization on the continent of Africa, that racism is the big pandemic that we have to deal with. And when we think about COVID-19, some of the disparities that exist in COVID-19, and we've talked about those, you've, you've highlighted those. I mean, the fact that Blacks represent about, uh, they're, they're about two or three times more likely to die from COVID-19 than whites. That statistic actually parallels the policing statistic, which is the fact that Blacks are 3.5 times more likely than whites to be killed by police when they're not attacking nor when they have a weapon. Black teenagers are 21 times more likely than white teenagers to be killed by the police. A black person is killed every 40 hours by a law enforcement officer in the United States. And that comes up with one out of every 1,000 black people will die due to police violence. And I think as we think about the founding of our society and how people like to highlight the officers in Minneapolis as being bad apples, one thing I know from studying policing for a decade and studying health disparities is that bad apples come from rotten trees. And as much as we highlight the bad apples, they are coming from a system and an organization, a social institution in law enforcement that actually leads to the disparities that we see in the streets. And it's highly connected to studies that we've been seeing around social distancing laws that we talked about before when we talked about masks, that mm -hmm. in New York, about 80% of all the people stopped for social distancing violations that were Black or Latino. Like all of these were part of the same continuum. And what I hope we can do moving forward is to really reimagine a new America, to live up to what many of us think that it feels like on a regular basis until we're reminded once again how inequitable our society actually is. I want to just give some statistics. I was I was reading the Minneapolis Star Tribune before we got on, and and just to your really powerful point there about racism and pandemic, and thinking of of them as parallel pandemics but connected. Black people, according to this article, have contracted at least twenty twenty nine percent of the known COVID nineteen cases with listed racial information in Minnesota, despite making up a little more than 6% of the state's population. And there's several thousand cases in which that racial data hasn't been provided. And an initial state health analysis of the first 1,104 hospitalized cases of COVID-19 in Minnesota showed that nearly 25% with known race data were black. I mean, this is exactly to your, to your point. I mean, what more evidence do we need that disasters more generally, health, more specifically, and COVID-19 to the point is, uh, how else can you describe it than to say that it is exacerbating and, and underlining racism in American society? You know, Scott, I, I don't think we need anything else. You know, I think ultimately what it is, is there are one group of people, regardless of race, who 
see these disparities, can understand them, are trying to figure it out and say, or even if they don't understand them, they're trying to figure it out. They know that there's something broader going on. And typically, of course, as social scientists, we and humanists, we would call this this structural inequality, right? Structural racism. So people are trying to figure that out. On the other side, though, there are actually people who are okay with these disparities. And we have to be very realistic about that, that there was an officer in Louisiana who recently got fired for saying on Facebook that unfortunately more black people haven't died due to COVID-19. I mean, we know that there are people out mocking what happened to George Floyd. And what it comes, what it comes down to is the fact that black bodies are dehumanized, criminalized, weaponized. And some people are perfectly fine with that. And so what it's going to take, similar to what happened with the civil rights movement, similar to what happened at the end of the Civil War, if, is that for those of us who view America and can see America as truly being racially equitable, this is the time that we speak up and speak out. This is the time that we become what I call racial equity advocates and racial equity brokers. And we advocate for other people and we broker the equitable rules, laws, regulations, and policies that we know need to be in place. And so, I mean, I don't, I don't know what else people really need at this point to see how bad this is, but I do know one thing. As MLK said, protests are the voice of the unheard. And there was a great clip of a teenager in Minneapolis who was saying that they were like a reporter asking, what was it? What is it going to take for you all to stop tearing stuff up? And he was like, I'm glad you asked that. He said, because we didn't start this. He was like, we did. And he was talking about the legacy of racism and the current manifestations of it. He was talking about the fact that from many protesters' perspectives, and of course there were images of this, that the police officers started to initiate some of the back and forth with weapons and, and rocks and that sort of thing. And he said, if, if this is going to change, you have to change it. And the you, I think he meant, is America, and particularly white America. And it reminds me of a black teenager in Baltimore five years ago who they were asking her the same question. And she said, you know, it's sad that it takes us to tear some stuff up for you all to listen to us. And I think MLK's quote highlights that. I mean, obviously he condoned um, nonviolent protest, but one thing that he recognizes that protests are coming from people who have not been heard previously. And that's what we see in cities across America for black people. Just to come back to something you said a minute ago, and, and I think we have to underline here that the vast majority of protest in this instance and in every instance of protest against police violence in these kind of instances is nonviolent protest. Uh, and, and yet, in all of the news reports, many of the news reports I've read, not all, not the more responsible news reports, um, <laughs> the word looting appears. And looting is a third rail that connects to, as you drew it right back into, I think the, all the way back in American history to talk about race and assumptions that people make about this connection between how people will act in a disaster and to criminalize people, particularly African-Americans. So when you see that word looting and you were careful to define it in a different way in the beginning of our conversation, what, how, do you, how do you reframe that for people so that they can understand what they're seeing is not looting, or if they're seeing property damage, it's not the kind of looting that some people wanna really say, no, this is, this is what's happening. Can you make some sense of that for us? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is when I think about it is, is it causing um, harm to, to people or not? So what we've seen in Minneapolis, this was property damage. Um, it wasn't necessarily um, enacting violence onto people. Like we, I haven't heard reports up to this point of people being injured or killed. And I think that that is what we would hope for. At the same time, we know that a Target burned down. We know that an auto store burned down. We know that a police precinct burned down. We also know from pictures and videos that this wasn't overly um, a black protest crowd engaging in these activities. And that's extremely, extremely important for people to recognize. If people have media that's showing them that, they actually need to look at multiple sources and see what's going on. The other big thing I think about it, to your point, is the framing of this. And you talked about natural disasters. 
earlier. And so I think about Hurricane Katrina and people are drawing parallels between Hurricane Katrina and COVID-19 and rightfully so, given its impact on black communities, particularly in New Orleans and Louisiana. But I remember seeing a clip from the same news outlet that showed white people taking stuff out of stores, aiming to survive, to eat, to live. And that's how they framed it. But when black people did the same thing, it said, look at these people looting. And the only difference, the same exact outlet, the only difference was the race of the people engaging in it. And that's an example of how implicit bias goes on steroids to really impact the images that we see. But this is all part of a broader continuum of how we think about an experience. And all everybody experiences racism. Like, like there's an assumption that white people don't. No, white people experience racism. White people experience race. They just experience a different side of the racism continuum. Oftentimes, there are certain benefits that come along with being on the opposite side of the racism continuum. Whereas black people, we talk about it as being on the detrimental side of racism, the negative side, the negative impacts. And so we have to be very realistic that, unfortunately, racism is baked into the very fabric of our society. And if you actually go throughout history, as you know, as a historian, unfortunately, what we're seeing now is what America has always done. This is what America does. These sort of things boil over. They happen. Supposedly people are living in harmony. People act like it starts with George, with, with, with George Floyd. No, it didn't. It started with all of the unnamed martyrs in Minneapolis and Minnesota that people don't know, that people in black communities do know, that has brought came to its head with what happened with George Floyd. The seemingly unlimited American capacity for surprise at racial violence and the somehow surprise at disaster impacts affecting people unfairly uh, is one of the most astounding things to me in American life. And it's structural. It, has, it is absolutely structural. I want to bring it back. I, I know we got to let you go here in just a second. I want to bring it back to one, one thing about this particular moment that is distressing to me is public health officials are concerned there in Hennepin County. Now they've had an uptick of COVID-19 cases recently. The state has come out of lockdown. People are gathering in larger groups and they're worried that the protests are also gonna to lead to a, um, a spike in COVID-19 deaths. And again, those deaths will track a higher percentage in the African-American community. That's a really rough thing to say to people. Um, you need to get in the streets and protest this injustice. And at the same time, you need to not get in the streets so that you can um, protect yourself and your family. How should people act in this moment? I mean, this is an example of how the two pandemics we're dealing with, COVID-19 and racism collide. Um, I mean, I'm not sure what to say. I mean, I was looking at the images and I was seeing you know, our, some of our famed civil rights activists turned journalists, politicians now, like say Al Sharpton, and I was like, geez, I was like, you're too old to be out there. Like you are in the group that should not be doing this. But this is what he does, you know? And so I think part of it for black people, the way black people think, they're like, well, you all want us to stay in and not be exposed to COVID-19. But then when we try to engage in, so and when we try to wear a mask, all of a sudden we're told to take a mask off because you think we're a criminal. When we walk down the street and try to engage in social distancing, all of a sudden we're the ones stopped. And now all of a sudden it leads to some sort of policing incident. So for a lot of black people, they think if COVID-19 isn't gonna give me, police brutality and racism will. And collectively, all of these factors collide on the bodies of black people that make us more vulnerable. Because one thing that's also happening right now, just this week alone, that there are a lot of black people who are extremely stressed out. And as you know, the more stressed people are, their blood pressure increases their level or likelihood of depression and anxiety also increases. It leads to several pre-existing health conditions or the likelihood that they might surface. And these are some of the exact reasons why, even among middle-class black people, that we are more prone to pre-existing health conditions is because we're worried about the fact that um, we have to think about the fact that if our kids go out and play, 
Are they going to be stopped for social distancing? If they're playing with a water gun and we're trying to order from Amazon, we have to think about the color. Can't can't make it black or dark blue. Like got to get the orange or or the or the really light color, the pink, the, the the neon green. You know, we have to worry about all those types of things. Have to say when you're going on a job, which route are you going on? How long are you going to be gone? Make sure you have your phone with you. Make sure that you have your your, your GPS tracker on you. All these sort of things lead to stress that lead to putting pressure on black people's bodies that lead to a higher likelihood of pre-existing conditions. And in a pandemic lead to us being more likely to die from COVID-19 or the stress of dealing with and processing police violence. The idea that African-Americans have always had to put their lives on the line to exercise civil liberties just needs to be broadly understood. And, and I would have never thought that, as you're describing it, um, that would mean putting yourself in the way of the danger of, a, of the greatest pandemic to hit America since 1918. But that seems to be exactly the moment that we're in right now. It's exactly right. I mean, there were a lot, I mean, 2020 has been one of those years that no one will ever forget. Um, and I read something on Twitter that stated you know, I didn't think that anything could beat COVID-19 in 2020, but racism has reigned supreme again. And I think that really highlights what it means to be in America and, and to be black in America, that this is the reality of what it means to be black in America. Dr. Rashawn Ray, thank you for all you do and keep after it. And I'm sorry we keep meeting under these circumstances, but um, that's the second time you've enlightened me in the last month. So good luck to you. And I hope we get a chance to speak with you again on COVID calls. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you, Scott. We are now going to turn to our second guest for today's discussion, and I'll introduce him here. Gonzalo Vasicalupe is professor of counseling psychology at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and he leads the citizen education and governance team at the Research Center for Integrated Disaster Risk Management, SIGIDEN, in Santiago, Chile. He's also an artist, and his work has been showcased at the 2018 exhibition Liminal Territory and the Cartographies of Bodies and Territories. This was shown in January of 2019 at the PUC Innovation Center and the UC Campus San Joaquin Library and the Casa Central Hall. And I would also acknowledge that he has just designed for us this week a new logo for COVID Calls. So, Gonzalo, thank you for coming on COVID Calls today. Thank you. This is, this is, um, it's a long, it's, it, it doesn't even feel like a marathon. It's like going to be a, I don't know, yeah. come, I, I don't know if you're going to resist this for, 12, some, for so long to do this. It's, um, I have to tell you that many days that this is the, this is the hour that makes the most sense. And this is the hour that gives me the most hope mm -hmm. because in a, in a pandemic, but then also the, the pandemic of misinformation uh, that's gone on. This seems to be an hour where we can collect people who yeah, I, actually you know, care about data and facts. You, you asked folks about where they are. And, you know, last Friday, I was so discouraged by the news, what we were seeing. And I, I saw like I, I felt like, you know, that I was I was tweeting that gif of, you know, Trump letting the mic go sort of like. You know, I'm I'm done. I mean, I'm I'm not influencing. I'm not doing anything that matters at this point. Why am I writing all these columns? Why am I getting all this hate mail? And I, I so I took a break. You know, I I did some painting, and then I, I just came back. <laughs> and in the middle of this week, I just wrote this very um, emotional column. I mean, it was sort of like, you know, I was. You know, uh, as your previous guest, I mean, when you're angry, I mean, for those of us who have the privilege of being able to write, um, writing, it's, it's, it's a great healer, you know, it's, 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 it's just, and then sending it out and, 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 and sending this column to this, um, 
sort of like center right wing kind of newspaper um, owned by some of the wealthiest families. And but the director of the newspaper is he's amazing. He's a really professional journalist. And I say, look, this is my column. <laughs> Mm. it's I know it's it's not the line it's not your but you know I really like to publish it because I want it to be read by those who are not convinced that we are mm. going into a catastrophe and he did publish it I mean they changed some things because the I, it was stronger but it created a um a tremendous uh, reaction I mean I even got an answer respond letter from the government then today you know it's um, which wow. means that somehow it, it was read. Um, what were some yeah. of the main? What were some of the main points you talked about in so, the? So, in so the, the the title is very provocative. It's called Chile and COVID nineteen. We start from zero, hmm. and basically, I'm trying to say, you know, I published a lot of things ten weeks ago to more than two months ago, and in reading that again, I I am I was really in anguish that I was finding that what I said it was going to happen if things were not done right and I was suggesting some measures we will be in the mess that we are right now and the mess is you know we are in terms of new contagions we are really at the top in the world um deaths are starting to pile up the 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 the, the health system is beginning to collapse um and you know we have like eighty-five thousand people who have contagion, etc. So, so I say that, and I and I sort of went through um, telling you know the government that I thought that they were incompetent, that they had not listened to the scientific community, and how they treated us, and and also I I really said you know yeah. this sense of success hide the fact that we might have some sort of a Italian phenomenon here. And I and I did it in sort of like almost polite way. And I said, you know, we have some characteristics that make it make us very similar to New Zealand in terms of being like an island. And, and we, we were we could have done something like that. Um, and I and I basically make the point and I say, if we don't, we need to start from zero if we want to have a spring. You know, spring here is next right. September. And 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 also I said we are not going to have the plebiscite, and I you know that was provocative. I mean it was provocative to the opposition, and I said you know we don't do something. Um, so this came out in a fairly in you know the top op ed in the op ed area, and clearly was read by you know thousands of people, and and so you know it's it's been um, and it's interesting because. With other researchers, this is the other piece I just wanted to highlight, um, and because disaster researchers do know this, that this is not a disciplinary thing. That that we need to think about what we have in front of us, and use all sort of disciplines to address it. We need mathematicians, we need anthropologists, we need historians, we need economists, we need we need everybody. We need physicians, and so. We also, I went to the radio, a program that is well heard and listened to, and we I talk about, you know, it's sort of like having conversations with people at the then at the center, about how do we move the conversation from being a public health crisis to this is a disaster. Because the conversation about being a slow disaster did not get tracked. So the, the thing is, we have experience dealing with disasters in Chile. Sure. Why not to think about that structure? And um, I plainly asked for the resignation of the Minister of Health. Uh, but basically, how do we use the opportunity to to really um, put the country together to to look for the governance um, that we do have experience with? And um, so it turns out that today we are going to have. There's a letter that we wrote with like thirty researchers who've been sort of like outside the government, but doing the work, you know, modeling all kinds of people. I mean, coming from everywhere. Very interesting. We, we, we put it together with some media people because in fact, you know, I always complain about media, but really the media has been quite good this time. I mean, it, it has not been the media the problem. Mm. I, I thought, I, I've been thinking that the coverage has been 
Deep Bank validation, a lot of good stuff that uh, we've been putting out. And so uh, we're, we're going to announce this letter that is going to the president. And it, but it's one of the things that I find in some way, I don't know if to be optimistic or pessimistic, is how is it that this very brief column can have such an effect? Because we have published several very well-researched reports. I mean, in, in, a, in, a, in a sort of like a column, but with a lot of numbers and, you know, uh, quite yeah. very specific things. But somehow you, and this is, you'll appreciate this, as a historian and, and more in the humanities side in some way, is that finally it's the use of certain words that move people. So one of the things I say is the, the Minister of Health used some artificial intelligence experts with no teeth on the street. And that <laughs> sentence somehow bothered the bother and probably did bother because it's true. Mm. And that they use some these mathematical models that don't mean anything. Um, so here so the, we are, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I just wanna remind people you're listening to COVID calls and you can get your questions in uh, to YouTube live chat or you can email them to me directly, sgk23 at drexel.edu or put them up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag me at US of Disaster and join my conversation mm -hmm. now with Gonzalo Basicalupe. We're gonna talk about Chile now and other topics that might come up. I, w I just wanted to circle back because the to your last point, Gonzalo, because I just checked the numbers before we got on, 90,638 confirmed COVID-19 cases in Chile, 944 deaths, of course, yeah. reliability. So this weekend is the 1,000, which is a yeah. symbolically is it's a very... symbolic, it's a turning point. And if you put the, if you put yeah. the, the, the line compared to other countries, the rate of increase has been higher in Chile. Yeah. And, and I have wondered, and talking to you is helping me understand this more clearly. So you've had months now watching from Wuhan to South Korea and Singapore to Italy to the United States, and now to Chile, it must have seemed like a sort of suspended animation for some time. And you're describing publishing an article that's saying, it's now, it's, it's here, now. you haven't yeah. done enough, and yeah. let's get serious. Right. And it seems to have struck a nerve in this moment. But right. Do you think, think that's because the death count is really becoming palpable to people, um, or what's the story? I think that that has to do with people who are sort of like following it from the side, who might not reach the news. I think that the day we have 1,000 in the newspaper title, that is going to immediately raise the, the social perception of risk, if you want to put the, the term um, higher. Um, I think that what I did do was to channel um, some of the frustration of a lot of the people who are trying to be, trying to contribute, and that in some way we we were called names. We, you know, uh, you know, even after I published this column, the Minister of Health, that this is obviously by chance, he did say in a new in a TV interview that he was not aware of the amount of people who live in poverty and in very harsh conditions in Chile. And, you know, you've been in Valparaiso. Um, not, a, not aware. He, yeah. How do you get... <laughs> he did say that. I mean, it's just... I mean, how is it that you can actually plan, use epidemiology? He, he's a clinical epidemiologist. He's a clinical epidemiologist. He's not a social epidemiologist. But how can you do epidemiology not understanding the, the, the social demographic structure of your country? It's just, it's, it's, it's maddening. And the day before he did say, you know, this was all, you know, uh, a car castle, these models. So, I'm, so it, you know, there's this sense, this is sort of like the injury. And, and in some way, it resembles the reaction of the government when we have, uh, you know, the protest, social protest in October. I mean, it's right. sort of like the same sort of response. In fact, I think that they use some of the same language, the idea of the for the normal, for the normal enemy, you know, it's sort of like the Trump kind of thing, this mm -hmm. the enemy. You know, two weeks ago, the Minister of Health declared the Battle of Santiago, you know. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, all this very... Yeah. So the militarization uh, of the Military of kind the virus. of yeah. discourse. And it's just you know, um, and one of the things that, you know, it really, I think, 
has generate generating in a lot of people in the largest population is this sense that we don't have enough death and they play a lot with that and mm. and that had to do with the development of the contagion in the country in terms of who actually got the virus first which were you know I did think I, I said the first time we met you know the wealthier younger mm-hmm. healthier with good healthcare access were the ones who actually got sick first. So of course we didn't have high mortality. Sure. But that has changed. And um, and so the other thing is in some way we look a lot like Italy and Spain in terms of, we have longer, you know, we have you know our longevity is higher, much higher than Peru or many of the our countries around, even Brazil. We, you know, people live longer here um so that means you know there's more people at risk and and then there's the other piece that you know somehow you know i've been talking with a lot of now i i'm talking with all sort of people from everywhere and it's the issue and I, we know that as, as public health people covid generates such a demand in the health system that there's mm-hmm. all kinds of other ailments you know particularly related to chronic illness but also accidents and things of that sort that people are not going to have um, places to go to to be healed, you know, to help. I, I wanted to ask you about that because people yeah. might not be too familiar with the healthcare system in in Chile. And as I understand it, it's it's um, unlike some of your neighbors. It follows a much more United States kind of pattern. In fact, probably mm-hmm. with direct intervention of the United States in the nineteen seventies, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. The, um, but it, it's a it's a, a private healthcare system. Uh, we we do have a large private healthcare system, but it's also a large public one. I mean, which is an inheritance. It was disassembled. We had a very good national health system in the 60s, 70s, until you know the, with the coup d'état there was a disentangling of that. Um, so then we have tremendous inequality. So like in the United States, so we have you know clinics that really resemble any any in Boston, so to speak, mm-hmm. and then we have also some. With a really bad infrastructure. Maybe what differentiates us, uh, and I always say this, is that despite the dictatorship, I think that we do have an amazing um, healthcare personnel workforce, nurses and doctors, who in some way carry that sort of social medicine um, approach. Mm-hmm. I mean, just remind you that the previous mm-hmm. president, Bachelet, was a physician, and right. again, there was a physician, and he was a minister of health previously. So there is that sort of like mm-hmm. memory of health for everybody. Um, but like in many places, and um, like it did happen with the retirement accounts, it became had become increasingly privatized, and that meant that despite having a fairly good workforce, the infrastructure. And, you know, the way people treat it and all that, it's not, you know, it's not up to standards at all. So, yeah. And so you think, I mean, how does that, what kind of measures are you looking at then for um, hospitals there in Santiago or in Valparaiso? I mean, our, our beds are filling, I presume, and ICU occupancy. I mean, how's yeah. the Right. So um, as you did experience in New York, and I mean, you know, the, the illness get a hold in place. I mean, it, the, the contagion goes gazoo when there's high density and too many people. So, you know, the capital has eight to nine million uh, people, about 40% of the population in Chile, which is like 19.2 or something like that. Um, and so this, this is the place also with the highest concentration of good healthcare, um, because Chile is very centralized. Most of the resources are used in the center. But then you have Valparaiso, which is, you know, it's just nothing. It's just, it's an hour and a half from Santiago, uh, where there's large poverty, large pockets of poverty, where the infrastructure is not as good. Mm. And um, with, you know, no capacity to quarantine people, really. Um, And so there's, you know, there's several measures that we are suggesting to deal with this catastrophe, to, to deal with not having a catastrophe mm-hmm. after we deal with the disaster that we're going to have this, we're beginning to have from now on, you know, 
every day we get more new deaths. Um, you know, today was 55, I think. I, I, I don't follow. It's, it's not worth following the day today. I mean, I have learned with other people that that's it's very confu confusing to your mind. I mean, you need to think for this particular virus, you need to think weekly, even two weeks as good range of to figure out because you count things. There's a huge lag between counting and when it happened. And then the counting leads to, you know, a different, you know, pathways for people from those who are asymptomatic to those who get sicker, but they can stay home, those who need care and those who actually might end in a, in a you know, in a treat, in, in a intensive unit treatment. Uh, and so, and that means that you need to think three, six weeks. And um, we changed the discourse with a couple of other articles that we wrote, the more dense, where we changed the continuous obsession with the daily thing rather than thinking, okay, if we do this now, we need to think how it's going to have an impact in three weeks. And that, what does it mean for this coming three weeks? Um, and until now, they... They were able to handle it. They were bringing respirators and, you know, they were, they were all sort of different kinds of success. I mean, you, when you, the, but now there's, you know, one of the things that people generally don't understand is that, so you're doing tertiary care, right? I mean, with these respirators, very sophisticated right. things. And then you're doing mitigations, which is sort of like secondary prevention. But for that, you need also very good primary care. There's no primary care right now because, all doctors are in tertiary care, which can only contain a small amount. And what is happening, so, I mean, some of what the UK has been able to do. I mean, the UK has a strong primary care system that was, that, you know, was able to sort of continue doing that and so that there's traceability. And even though they made a big mess at the beginning with the herd immunity, they were able to switch to this other mm -hmm. uh, more rigid quarantine. Um, it's very complex. And, you know, what? one of the things that I, I'm very committed now is, is we need to stop thinking of this as the mental health business. Mm. And th th this is a country business. And, th that, and also to get everybody, you know, particularly the interior minister with Onemi, with the, you know, the emergency office involved and really running some things because this is an emergency. Um, and... In some way, even I would say four days ago, you know, Congress and the Minister of Economics and all these people were talking about what to do in the post-pandemic. We don't yeah. even know when it ends. You know, it's just like, <laughs> you know, they were all planning. As, and, and, and then you, you are left with the Minister of Health, who I think is not competent for this job right now anymore. But, okay, but independent of that, the personality or whatever, it's impossible for just that Minister of Health to coordinate all the pieces. Um, and, and I, you know, in some way, the, the, um, one of the things that, you know, we need to rediscover where are our resilient points. And our resilient points is that we do have a lot of experience, this is different from other countries, dealing with large disasters. And we had one just a decade ago, so. Right. But it's it's interesting the, the the way you're describing, and I think we did see this in the United States too. This very strong desire to box this as just a health problem that one agency in the federal government can manage, you know, yeah. CDC, and then well that didn't work. Yeah. So the Health and Human Services will management will manage it, and at every phase when it got bigger, yeah, um, there was this moment of sort of disbelief in the public. And and this, as you described it, a sort of unwillingness to say, no, this is a this is a disaster at a national scale of something we haven't seen before. Now, right. I think the Chilean context, you have seen disasters, right, right, um, that that affect certainly the major population centers. Right. Um, right. Um, in and, and we years. cannot depend on international humanitarian reaction because everybody is facing some serious Everyone, shit. No, it, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> you know? But but also to something else, which you said, I think is really important that this. On the one hand, I almost find it optimistic that people want to talk about the end of a disaster. They they want mm -hmm. to see the end of it. Mm -hmm. um, but premature discussion 
of coming out of confinement and shelter in the United States and um, talking about recovery when the case numbers in 25 states are still going up day by day in the United States is just a magical thinking that to me is very, very dangerous. Magical thinking. Yeah. And you're seeing that there as well. Yeah. So, 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 so here's the thing, you know, a few weeks ago, they were talking that we had some plateau that we have plateau our death rate and our contingent rate. The contingent rate was actually related to the testing rates, how much testing we were doing. Sure, of course, right? yeah. And then there was a plateau in, in, in death rate. There's, there's a technical way to think about why it was happening. But, and then, you know, they realized, they said, you, and a lot of us were saying, look, this is not that. This is a train that is going really fast. And, you know, you're going to have to break at some point and you're going to hit something bottom there. And so we did, actually. I think we did that. Now, the problem is that there's another train coming in back. And so the survivors are going to be hit by that train at the same time, which also contains other people. So the thing is, if you, if you now we're going up, and, and I use the volcano metaphor, you know, we're going up. We don't know if there's another volcano in the back. It's like going to the mountains. And, you know, when you hike, mm. you, you think, oh, I have to go there. But really, I'm going to the other. And then you realize when you get there that actually that was one of the low ones. Because there's <laughs> yeah, another yeah, one, right? right? I mean, if you do really serious right. hiking, that's... you realize that these are, you know, approaches to things. Yeah. And, and then there's a point in which you're actually going to see the one that is. Re- so I do think that we're still going up in one that does not allow us to see the next one. Um, so I, we need to prepare for the next one because the one we're going up right now, it's, it's going to be hard. And we should assume, and I talk about collective trauma and, you know, some people understood it as doing the anticipatory grieving. And I'm suggesting, well, there's going to be a lot of collective trauma and we're going to have to do a lot of collective healing, but, but, but we cannot talk too much about the past. What are, how are we going to recover? How are we going to, you know, and even the opposition, which I also criticized in the column, you know, I said in the column and I was provocative, we're not going to have a plebiscite. And people were like, oh, how can, well, it's just in five months. I mean, and we've already been this in for three months. So, you know, if we don't shift, you know, um, so it's it's a very, um, you know, one of the things a lot of us been been talking and saying, you know, there's a way in which, yes, we, we have the commitment of the violinists in the Titanic, but somehow I think that we're, we've been hitting some rocks, not the larger iceberg. So we better do something. I mean, um, so we say the ship, um, and um, it's 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 frustrating. It's it's a, it's a now I should say though that um, I think we don't have any memory in this country of our la- la- last epidemics, which was in 1957. I don't know if you. Know that, but there were about three thousand people that died at that time, which is huge considering the size of the country. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was a disaster. But then we had the big catastrophe in the nineteen sixties. So I think that that nineteen fifty seven, which probably longer for a year and a half, I imagine. But you know, I've been asking my mom; mm. she doesn't remember. My dad; I mean, I've been yeah. asking older folks and say, "Do did your parents talk about?" No one talks about it. No talks There's about no it. memory. Um, and as you know, uh, you know better than I do, 1918, I think we forgot it in the wrapping up of the first world. I mean, the, the war, yeah, I mean, sure. somehow it became you know, all. I've been looking yeah. at this. I've been looking at the 57 one is interesting. And the, and the, the 1968 influenza pandemic, which um, did kill, I don't have the numbers at hand, but killed a lot of mm-hmm. people in the United States. Um, and it, it, of course, that year, 1968, and I think 2020 is going to go down mm-hmm. with 1968, um, there were just too many things that obscured it. But it, uh-huh. you know, it broke out in East Asia. It traveled to Vietnam. It ravaged Vietnam and Laos. I mean, it traveled with uh-huh. the war, basically. Right. But we've largely written it out of the history because we had so yeah. many other traumas going on at that yeah. time. I mean, I think we have to really enhance our, our thinking as disaster specialists not yeah. to treat these things somehow separately, yeah, but to yeah. see what happens when you bring them together in combination. I mean, I think that's what, you know, Rashawn Ray was just, was just saying, yeah. you know, yeah. gonna stop yeah. treating the pandemic and racism as somehow separate. Yeah, let's, yeah, yeah. let's imagine what happens when you, when you right, combine right. that. 
so I've been thinking a lot about this map, this thing about memory, and and yeah. you know, in part inspired by some of the we, some of the things we've been talking about, and so you know, I've been painting, of course, and I ran out of uh, canvas, so I had a bunch of um, Japanese cars, and which is one of those is the one that you know we use for the COVID call thing. Um, I'll, I'll find it where it is, but it is oh yeah, it's here, it is, um, which is I think this one, right? That's the one that's now been yeah. transformed yeah. thanks to your generosity. Digit, yeah. Logo. So, so one of the things that I ran out of canvas and I, I had this, this uh, Japanese cards. In fact, they're used for lettering. So they have this little something in here, you know? So I used the reverse uh -huh. um, to start creating all these cars, you know? Uh, I did a little video somewhere. Um, and so I, I've been thinking what I was trying, I mean, sometimes I paint and I do not know what I, why am I painting what I'm painting. So, and I put it in this box, which is a chocolate box. Uh, and I thought, you know, these cards, there are like 50 of them, 60 of them. I wonder each, if it's a way of inscribing each card as being a story. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, because I think that when we think about these curves and these numbers and these tables and the world media thing and the rankings and all that stuff, somehow there's a point in which they don't mean anything. I mean, yeah. they they're devoid of humane humaneness. So I'm thinking, you know, I have my car cars and I've been painting a few every day. And I it's funny because I've been doing this before I even go get breakfast. I start painting. I spend a half an hour in the studio. And I realized maybe each of these is sort of like the traces of what this virus is leaving us with. Mm -hmm. um, and somehow, you know, I, I sort of like, I've been asking to my you know, relatives, I mean, I've been asking friends who have relatives in Spain because, you know, my great my grandparents came from Spain and they were kids when, in the 1918 pandemic, no one has memories. The photos, I mean, the photos though, from that time, you look at photos from the 1920s, even early 30s, but 20s, everybody's very serious. The kids, it's not just an impact of the, you know, the photo, but, but you see the kids and you see the, the, um, the desolation. And yeah. now I understand it's, it's just, you know, it's that, pandemic and that have to have destroyed thousands of lives millions actually but um so yeah, yeah. well you've been thinking a lot about how you how we're going to inscribe this we're going to how we're going to do uh -huh. this you know i'm really i'm moved by what you were just saying because it's an opening it's something i'm hoping in the next few months with COVID calls we're going to have we're going to talk more with musicians um painters, choreographers mm -hmm. um, about making in this time and also about uh, inscribing stories because mm -hmm. it is easy. We see, I'll speak for myself I, and I fall into this. Um, mm -hmm. We want the dashboard because the dashboard is somehow reassuring. If you see the, mm -hmm. the line going up, you also can envision it coming down. But the narratives, as we know, are much more complicated and they're much more devastating, mm -hmm. really. Right. right. I and mean, that's why right. I've been trying to pair yeah. every day yeah. the numbers with the life story, with the obituary. Right. And I often find it, it's hard for me to predict which one is going to yeah. frustrate me more. But it's often the obituaries because they just capture the grain of the loss in a very real in a very right. way, it seems like that's exactly what you're trying to capture with the painting. Right, right. So, so, so I'm thinking about this painting. Oops, let me see. There you go. Oops, there yes. you see it. So it looks almost like two fingerprints, you know. Um, right. And and I, you know, I've been thinking about this, and I say because one of the things when you do when you do abstract painting is it's like probably like writing a book. When do you know that it's done? You know, when is that you stop editing? Because when the editor can... takes it away. <laughs> That's, yeah, what that's, that's what my books are done. Sometimes go to the studio and pull it out and say, oh, I yeah. like it. And yeah. I say, well, and if you continue working on it, you might mess it up. You know, there's no, if I continue painting this, I might lose what I wanted. And I thought, you know, um, this is a life. And, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic here, every day that they will inform the death, they will talk about this 
all the people have coexistence things that in a way they were going to die anyway, that somehow that message was there, yeah. you know, because it's 88 or because it's 78 or, you know, or 70, 87. I says, oh, that's the age of my mom, you know, 87. Yeah. And, and I thought, or 92, like my friend who died in, in, in Massachusetts, you know, very well-known psychologist who, you know, she was lucid. She was still contributing. She was loved by people. And so how do we, I mean, it's just one life should be able to mobilize the world if you know that you could save it. And it's, this is, this is not like reporting something that, that, that there's no way to, to deal with it but as, as we move forward. And, and um, I think that that's, the, it's really different from a tsunami. A tsunami happened, you know, you know, and a lot of people die. Let's say 100, 200 people die. Okay, they die, but it's, that's it. <laughs> that's yeah. it. You have to mourn that. Um, this is like one tsunami that killed three, that one other, and it, it yeah. goes on and on and on and on. It's unbounded. And, 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 and so you need to learn from that and you need to yeah. somehow give it some more weight. I'm, I, I don't like the word, word weight, but thickness to it. I guess thickness, mm -hmm. the anthropology, Clifford Geert's idea of you need to thicken the story. Um, and I and, think we, I, yeah. this, is, uh, this is really useful discussion to me. And I talked with Tricia Wachtendorf a bit about this yesterday yep. too, that, mm -hmm. that, and of course she's a genius. And, 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 you know, we have a lot of apparatus to think about disaster events like tsunamis. And I think we've developed some quite sophisticated apparatus to think yeah. about slow disasters like climate change. But we're in some sort of meso level thing here. It's happening yeah. at a speed and it's unfolding at a pace and it's moving with a creep that, and it blends into life and yeah. it'll be, end up being a, a 24 to 36 month long disaster that will, I think relatively soon become dis undistinguishable from life. Right. Every facet. Right, right. That is not the conceptualization we usually have for disasters. We treat disasters as a separate space, a space, right. something that didn't happen, didn't mean to happen to us. It happens. It's an event. We recover from it. We move on. It's a, it's a special note. It's an asterisk. So, we will not have that luxury with COVID-19. Yeah, yeah. So I have three things to say very quickly because, yeah, because yeah, we're going to have to finish up. very soon. One, you know, your COVID conversation with the Italian topologist. Remember? Yeah, sure. I had never forgotten that conversation, and that inspired that column yesterday. Really? I wrote it in the Twitter, and I said, you know, when I heard, and she said that a whole generation is lost, yeah, yeah. In, a, in a town, that has never stopped informing what I'm doing. Yet, let her know. Let her I know. will. I will. She's the other amazing. thing is, you know, before this thing happened in Minnesota, we had just submitted an article with five more colleagues, um, very multi-diverse, multi-racial ethnic group on racial equity and COVID and racism. Um, well, the problem with those is that they take a long time to get approved. I hope that it, it comes out sometime in the fall um, because we spoke, the, we, we told the editor a month in advance that we were gonna be submitting. And the other thing is, I just wanna connect it with your previous guest. Um, you know, in Chile, before all started, just all I don't know if they passed the law or if it is a law, but they passed a law about people not using masks in protests. And you know, it's you know, it is you know. So we, I've been thinking a lot about when we come out again to the streets and start protesting. Probably going to be some protests with social distancing that people talking about it already. Nice. We're gonna and have to wear masks, and you know, it's, yeah, it's it's yeah, gonna be very very interesting. Yeah, um, a, so I wonder, in circle, yeah. yeah. So um, I wonder if we could. I asked you before we talked if you wouldn't mind. I've been reading obituaries mostly yep. from the United States, but if you mm -hmm. would share a life story from yep. Chile, and you very kindly agreed. So let's finish. Let's finish with that, Gonzalo. Yeah. So. Here they don't write obituaries the way they do the Boston Globe or the New York Times. But but I read today's story about um, a woman who um, her name is Rosa Fuentes. She she died when she was seventy nine. Um, 
when she arrived from abroad, she was coming from abroad, she quarantined herself immediately. She did what I did. That's what somehow I, you know, and because she didn't want her family, her daughter and four grandchildren to have, to get the, the virus. Um, and so she also was aware that there were other people with the potential contagion. Um, but the, you know, the, the report talks about what she did to protect herself. And that last one, and that she did all this for her whole family. And that hit me that finally at the funeral, only five people were allowed to attend. Um, and how she, she stayed in her room. Um, she was with her sister who took care of her. Um, and one of the things that really made me so sad was, you know, in general, when you're close to someone, you, you, you want to put the clothing on the person. You don't let, you know, the people who put in the, um, in the, um, aren't to do it. So, but they couldn't do it. And, and this is something that the whole family is still, you know, in mourning. I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't do it. Um, she, her biggest achievement, they say, was that she was really loved because 50 years before she had arrived to this place of land and she had divided the territory. So all her the people who belonged to this organization could get uh, a piece of land and to set up this, this village. Mm. You know, it's just um, someone who was super committed to community, but she couldn't end being in a community. It's just mm. devastating, I think. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's, again, that's, that's not a data point on a graph. That's a, right. that's a life that reverberates with countless other lives. Yeah. Yeah. Gonzalo, thanks for sharing this time today. Thank you. Really appreciate Have it. I know, we, I know we'll talk again. And oh, I should say, you're going to be on CNN in just an hour. In about an hour. <laughs> Yeah. Right, everybody tune in to uh, CNN to see Gonzalo there. CNN Chile, yeah. Uh, CNN Chile, fantastic. I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls, and on Monday we're going to talk about compound disasters with Aaron Clark Ginsberg from Rand and Miriam Beldidia of Imagine Waterworks. Stay healthy, everyone, and thanks again, Gonzalo. Talk to you all Take soon. Take care. <laughs>